You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Good afternoon, everybody. Glad you could join me here. My name is David Guzik. I am a pastor, a Bible teacher, and I have an online Bible commentary through the entire Bible, going through chapter by chapter, verse by verse. It's available at EnduringWord.com and also at BlueLetterBible.com. And um, I'm very pleased to be able to do what God gives me to do, that is, talk to people about the Bible, to communicate biblical truth, We get together here on Thursday afternoons at 12 noon. And since the whole coronavirus pandemic has come, uh, I've been adding a second day of the week that I do the question and answer. That's on Monday afternoons, Pacific time, 12 noon. I don't know how long I'm going to continue the Monday Q&As, but for the time being, we'll say that they'll continue. And uh, we usually lead off with a question that I have to begin with. So Uh, Today's question I want to begin with comes uh, from someone, I didn't catch their name. As the question was relayed to me, I didn't catch your name, but that doesn't really matter. It's really centered on this idea of um, why did God love Jacob and hate Esau? And that, of course, raises some larger questions as well. So here's the question from uh, the viewer. They say, I just love your question and answer on YouTube sessions. They are very edifying to Christians at all levels. I watched this well-known pastor and have been upset ever since. The pastor says that God makes sure some people are saved and called elected, while others are not. Then the question goes on to say, Are you please able to clarify the meaning of these verses, Romans chapter 9, verse 13? His teachings contradict the Bible verses that Jesus wants none to perish. Thank you, David. I will be watching for your answer. Well, I'm happy to answer this question or at least deal with it the best I can. This question deals with some controversial topics, things that the broader Christian family aren't in entire agreement on, but I think they're in general agreement on a lot of the principles. And let me just sort of walk through this. The question is based on Romans chapter 9, verse 13, which simply says this, As it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. And the idea there is that God loved and accepted Jacob. God did not choose and rejected Esau. So let let me think about this and go back a few verses, start reading at verse 10. And we understand that The Apostle Paul's making an argument from Old Testament history having to do with the descendants of Abraham. So here we go. Uh, Romans chapter 9, starting at verse 10. Paul writes this. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. What Paul is remembering here is something that God did in the book of Genesis, where God chose Jacob, and he chose Jacob over Esau. Now, the important thing to point out here is that Paul makes it clear in verse 11 
that God made this choice before the children were ever born. It says there in verse 11, not yet being born, not having done any good or evil. So in other words, God did not make the choice based on good or evil that either Jacob or Esau would do or not do. The, the choices were made for other reasons. They weren't made just based on, well, Jacob, you're a good boy. Uh, I'll choose you. Esau, you're a bad boy. Uh, I won't choose you. That, that wasn't the idea here. Instead, verse 11, he says that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Now, we're not to think that God chose Jacob over Esau because he knew his works in advance. Paul takes that completely off the table here in verse 11. Paul points out that it was not of works. Instead, the reason for choosing Jacob over Esau was found in him who calls. Now, you got to stay with me on this. I'm just trying to explain what it says here in Romans chapter 9. God chose Jacob. He did not choose Esau. He didn't choose them having to do with anything that they had done or would do. The, the simple promise was this, verse 12, the older shall serve the younger. God announced these intentions to choose Jacob, who was the younger, instead of the older, who was Esau. God announced these intentions to Rebekah before the children were even born. By the way, you'll find that in Genesis chapter 25, verse 23. And God repeated his verdict. God repeated his choice long after Jacob and Esau had both passed from the earth. Because that phrase, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated, that quotes Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Now, what are we to make of all this? Well, we should regard the love and the hate here expressed in Romans chapter 9, verse 13, and the choosing and the not choosing regarding Jacob and Esau. What did God love them or hate them regarding? What did God choose them or not choose them regarding? It's really very simple. It's clear in Genesis. It's clear here in Romans. God loved or hated in regard to which one would become the heir of the covenant of Abraham. God's desire was, I'm going to choose one of these brothers. I'm going to choose either Jacob or I'm going to choose Esau. I'm going to choose Jacob. He's the one who will become the heir of the covenant of Abraham. I'm not going to choose Esau. And that preference of God in the terms of the covenant could be regarded as a display of love towards Jacob and hate towards Esau. Now, look, th there are some people who say that what God really meant here was that in regard to Esau, he loved less. They say really the idea of hate, both in Malachi and as it's quoted here in Romans chapter 9, verse 13, that the idea isn't really to hate someone, but it's to love them less. And there are some places in the Bible where that word hate, or at least the idea of hate, seems to mean something like to love less. But I don't think that's the sense here. I don't have any problem saying that in the way Romans chapter 9, verse 13 says it, God hated Esau. But remember, he hated Esau in a particular way. 
Esau was rejected as the one to inherit the Abrahamic covenant. He was rejected as the one to carry on, to carry forth that covenant that God made with Abraham and Isaac. It was going to be Jacob and not Esau. Now, look, let's be very clear. It wasn't because Jacob was better than Esau. Let me tell you something about these two brothers, Jacob and Esau. They were both bad in their own ways. It was that God chose one of them to receive the covenant. And in regard to the covenant, God rejected the other. Let, let me just make this very plain. This has nothing to do with Esau's eternal destiny. The entire choosing and sense here in Romans chapter 9, especially as you focus it on verse 13, it doesn't mean that God chose Jacob for heaven and Esau to hell. Not at all. It means that God chose Jacob to be the heir of the Abrahamic covenant and Esau would not be the heir. Nor did this choosing have to do with God's general blessing on his life. All in all, please listen to me carefully. All in all, Esau was a blessed man. You know, one of the greatest examples of the blessings that was on Esau's life was because, you know, when Jacob and Esau parted, it was really ugly. Esau was saying, I'm going to kill my brother, Jacob. And that's bad. Whenever one of the brothers is saying, I'm going to kill the other brother, that's very bad. And Esau was the kind of guy to carry that out. Many years later, when the brothers came back together, Jacob was terrified at the idea of meeting Esau because Esau was a rough man and he had vowed to kill his brother. And so Jacob wanted to buy his brother Esau off by giving him all kinds of gifts. So he sent him all kinds of flocks, all kinds of herds, all kinds of treasures, all kinds of things to buy his peace, to buy his friendship, so to speak. And when Esau met Jacob and said, what is this that you've given me? Why do you send me all these gifts? Jacob says, look, I'm just sending it to be kind, to show my friendliness, all this. And this is what Esau said. Genesis chapter 33, verse nine. Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Now, let me tell you, that is a blessed man. A man who can say, I have enough. You've given me all kinds of gifts. I don't need any of them. Keep what you have, brother. That is a blessed man. And then if you want to go on for the blessing that was upon Esau's life, Genesis chapter 36 is a whole chapter of the descendants and leaders and noblemen that came from Esau. Let me tell you something. Esau was a blessed man. So in whatever way that God hated Esau, it didn't have to do with the general blessing upon his life. He was a blessed man. And I don't think it had anything to do with heaven or hell you may very well see Esau in heaven. I certainly can't say you won't. You may very well see him in heaven. But here's the point. In regards to the covenant, absolutely God hated Esau. Jacob, I'm choosing you to inherit it. Esau, you will not inherit it. It was not in regard to blessing in this life or eternal life in the life to come. Now, a commonly quoted idea on this uh, comes from William Newell. He's just repeating what many people have repeated. He says that a woman once said to Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher of Victorian England, I cannot understand why God said that he hated Esau. 
That, Spurgeon replied, is not my difficulty, madame. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. And that really is the issue, isn't it? Not that Esau was rejected in terms of the covenant. Jacob himself was such a scoundrel, yet nevertheless, God chose him. Now, one big mistake that many of us make when we consider the choices of God is to think that God chooses for just make it up as you go along reasons. Sometimes people call these arbitrary reasons. They're reasons that are like just because, as if God just says, well, I'll choose this and not the other. Listen, we may not be able to understand God's reasons for choosing, but there are reasons for God's choices. They may be reasons that he alone knows, reasons that he alone answers to, but God's choices are not capricious. They're not arbitrary. God has a plan and a reason. We honestly scratch our heads. God, why would you choose either one of these guys? Why would you choose either Jacob or Esau? But God says, no, I got a plan and Jacob fits in with my plan. So in all of this, we see that the choosing of Jacob and Esau was not the choosing of one for heaven and the other for hell. Now, I'm not saying that God does not choose a people for himself. God's choosing, God's election is something clearly taught in the Bible. But the way God presents this idea to us in the Bible is important. And there's at least two things that I think of when I think about God's choosing or his election. Number one, we are to think of God's choosing in terms of choosing to heaven and not in terms of choosing people to hell. That's because in several places, the Bible talks about God choosing people to heaven, but it doesn't really speak to God choosing people to hell at all. This is the way God presents this idea to us, and this is the way that we should hold it in our minds. So we don't think of what some people call double predestination. Yes, has God chosen people for heaven? Yes. Does it say that God has chosen specific people for hell? No, the Bible doesn't say that. We don't need to go there in our thinking, in our theology. Secondly, and this is very important, we are to think of God's choosing mostly, I'm not going to say exclusively, but we're to think of God's choosing mostly as something for us to think about looking back. In other words, those who have put their trust in Jesus Christ can say, I'm so happy that God chose me. It's all to his glory. We don't think about God's choosing as something looking forward. Now, again, I'm speaking in generalities, but in general, we don't have it in our mind. Well, I need to figure out whether or not this person is chosen or if they aren't. That's not how we're given to think of that. You see, the attitude God wants us to have looking forward is more like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's the mentality we look forward with. First Timothy chapter two, verse four speaks of God as the one who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Second Peter chapter three, verse nine says that God is not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance. So all of these remind us that, yes, there is a definite important place in thinking about God's election, God's choosing. But mostly we think of it in looking back. I believe in Jesus. He's brought me to faith and repentance. Thank you, Lord, for this. 
Oh, I see now that I was chosen. What a beautiful, thankful thing that is. We don't say, well, who are the chosen people here and who aren't they? No, we don't think in that regard. We look at God's choosing more in the sense of looking back. So we believe in God's election. We believe in God's choosing. We just need to rightly divide the word of God's truth and keep it all in its biblical perspective. Okay, I hope that's helpful for you. Let me say a couple more things before I go on to the side chat and take a look at what questions or comments people have brought in. I've got three good news things to tell you. First of all, praise the Lord. Yesterday, we completed the New Testament translation of my Bible commentary into Arabic and posted it on the website. The website is arabic.enduringword.com. Again, arabic.enduringword.com. And this is a goal we've been working towards for the last four years or so. I am so grateful to the amazing team of people that God brought together. I'm so grateful for Sue. And uh, Sue Heinen, you know who you are. She's the one who has sort of been the chief translator and the one who has been the general editor for all of the uh, Arabic translation of the com Bible commentary. I'm grateful to Philip, who has been instrumental in posting things online, as well as Emily and her work on that. I'm grateful to Elizabeth, who was really the one who prompted me to start translating my commentary into Arabic. And I'm just grateful for the many translators that have come together to help this work get done. I'm grateful for the people who have financially supported Enduring Word to get the New Testament translation done in Arabic. It's been very expensive. We've spent a lot of money on this, but I believe God is really going to use this. Would you please pray that now that the entire New Testament is up, that God would use it on the website? Now, it doesn't mean that our Arabic translation work is done. Right now, we have somebody working on translating my entire commentary on the book of Psalms. We're going to put up Psalms in Arabic. Maybe we'll put up Proverbs as well. And then we'll pray about what God helps us to do for the rest of the Old Testament. But we've got many translation projects going on. So that's the first praise the Lord, the Arabic translation. The second praise the Lord is the Chinese translation of the New Testament commentary is getting close. I would say that probably by the end of summer, hopefully, it may take a little bit longer, but hopefully by the end of summer, the Chinese translation on the New Testament of my commentary will be complete. And how exciting that will be to have that as well. And then thirdly, and I hope it's okay for me to share this. Uh, here I am writing on the, or speaking to you on the last day of April, 2020. But yesterday we had the biggest traffic day we've ever had on all of our platforms, the website, the uh, iOS or the iPhone app and the Android app. Collectively between those platforms, we had more than 150,000 page views in one day. In one day, we had that. What a remarkable thing. How blessed it is. That was the biggest day we've ever had. Uh, of people accessing the Bible commentary and the Bible resources. We're very grateful for that. Anyway, I just wanted to share that. It's a great blessing. So let me now go to the comments and to the questions in the side chat. First of all, Anthony de la Garza. God bless you, Anthony. 
Great to see you tuning in here on a Thursday. And you said you didn't know that I was also doing it on Monday. I'm going to continue doing it on Monday for at least a while. I don't know, maybe another week or two. But yes, for now, I'm doing two uh, YouTube Live question and answer videos. And God bless you, Anthony. Wonderful to hear from you. Uh, Luis says, hello, Mr. Guzik. Blessings from Florida. Today I have a question in the book of Samuel. When Saul visited the medium woman, was that really Samuel who spoke to Saul or was it some kind of demonic spirit? Oh, Luis is asking a great question. Um, it's in the later chapters of First Samuel. I would really recommend to you that you read my commentary on that from EnduringWord.com. It's pretty easy to find. Uh, but I do think it's an amazing thing. I'll just give you my quick take on that. I believe that it was a very unique situation where God allowed Samuel himself to actually go and speak to King Saul and to the medium. And I'll give you the uh, main reasons why I believe that. Now, I, I can't say I know that for certain. That's not a hill, so to speak, that I'm going to die on. But I, I think so for a couple of reasons. Number one, there's nothing in the text that tells us that it wasn't actually Samuel. The most natural presentation of the text there in 1 Samuel, oh, it must be what, chapter 29, chapter 30. The, the most natural presentation there of the text is just that this actually was uh, Samuel, who came up and visited King Saul and the medium, sometimes known as the witch of Endor. But here's a second reason. The witch of Endor or the medium in her, she was freaked out. This wasn't a parlor trick. This wasn't a game. This wasn't magic. Whatever was happening there at Endor in that witch's or her or that medium's, you know, room, she was freaked out about it. And I'll give you a third reason. What Samuel told Saul was absolutely true. It worked out just the way he said. So again, I'm going to recommend you go to my commentary at EnduringWord.com and take a look at it. But man, um, I believe, again, I, I, it's not like I'm going to, you know, contest it so vigorously. But to me, there's no good reason for saying that it wasn't a unique thing that God did. Um, now, by the way, this doesn't justify what Saul did or what the medium did. What they did was wrong. But I think what it was, was this was a situation where even in his judgment, God gave both Saul and the medium more than they were bargaining for. Great question there, Luis. Luciana says, um, hi, Pastor. Why do some people believe God created evil based on Isaiah 45, 7? Are they misunderstanding the scriptures? Thanks. Well, Luciana, um, if I remember Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7, let me get another Bible. It's easier to turn to. If I remember Isaiah chapter 45, 7, it really is a pretty direct statement of God talking about his creation of evil. I just think it has to be understood in the right sense here. So Isaiah chapter 45, verse 7 says this. Uh, I form light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Well, look, I, I would just say this. We know that everything that happens, happens at least by God's permission. So we speak very deliberately about God doing some things directly and God doing other things by allowing them. But God has certainly 
engineered a system where evil things can happen. And at the very least, God has allowed evil things to happen in that sense. And so they are traceable back to him. God has a purpose in allowing evil things to happen, even if he does not perform those evil things directly. A great example of this is found in the book of Job. Great calamity came upon Job in Job chapter one, but God was not directly involved in bringing the calamity, but God certainly did allow it to happen. So it just matters in what sense we're going to talk about God allowing or God performing calamity or judgment or bad things to happen. So I do think it's a misunderstanding to say that God is directly responsible for things, uh, but God certainly has created a system where those things can happen. And at the end of it all, God is going to make even the evil of this world serve his good and divine purpose. Look, the way I like to express it is like this, and I didn't come up with this formulation. I, I don't know who did, but it's certainly not original with me. We can't say that we live in the best possible world. Isn't that true? One less sickness, one less robbery, one less murder, and it would be a better world. We can't say that what we live in right now is the best possible world, but this is what we can say, and this is what we can believe biblically. What we live in right now is the best possible way to the best possible world. And you and I might say, well, the best possible world is a world that had never known evil and nobody could make a bad decision and nobody could do something bad and nothing bad would ever happen. We may think that, but that's not God's opinion. And I think if we think about it more, we come to agreement with God. We realize that God, as painful as it is, God has a good and deliberate purpose in allowing evil to exist, even if he doesn't directly perform it from his hands. So, Luciana, I think that's the best answer I could give to you at this point. Darren writes, how much wiggle room with Calvary Chapel is there for differences in theology on the baptism of the Holy Spirit, indwelling of the Holy Spirit, spirit of the living God fall afresh on me, biblical? Well, Darren, I, look, I, I'm the last person in the world who kind of want to speak for all the Calvary Chapel world, even though I am a Calvary Chapel pastor. That's the environment that I've grown up in and ministered in for decades. I, I love what God has done in and through the Calvary Chapel movement. But one of the things I know about the Calvary Chapel movement is that we're pretty diverse. And especially when it comes to an issue like this, you will find that Calvary Chapel pastors and leaders and congregants, for the most part, they do believe in the active work of the Holy Spirit. They're not cessationists. They don't believe that the gifts of the Spirit or a, a large number of the gifts of the Spirit have uh, ceased with the death of the apostles. They're not cessationists, but the terminology they use in communicating the work of the Spirit of God may be quite different, and there may be what you call wiggle room within that. I think sometimes when we talk about the work of the Holy Spirit, it's possible to get way too hung up on a specific terminology. Are we talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, the filling of the Holy Spirit, the work of the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, where there is a great deal of overlap between all of these concepts? 
so uh, I am pretty generous in my own mind and hopefully in my heart. I'm pretty generous to people using terminology in different ways, but I do like to get back to the fundamental concept. And part of the con fundamental concept that's dear to people in the Calvary Chapel, you know, family is that the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Holy Spirit is for today, though. Uh, the exercise of the gifts should not be made the center of congregational life. The center of congregational life should be worship and the word. Um, anyway, that's I, I hope that's helpful for you there, Darren. Dig says, uh, since Jesus is perfect, did he have to participate in sacrificing? Well, Dig, that's an interesting question. I'll repeat it. He asks, or she, I guess, I don't know exactly what kind of name Dig is. Uh, since Jesus is perfect, did he have to participate in sacrifice? Okay, well, think about Jesus, the things that he did that were connected with the sacrificial system, things that we know biblically. Uh, we know that Jesus was circumcised. That was at least connected with the priestly system. We know that Jesus celebrated Passovers. That was connected with the priestly system. There's evidence that Jesus celebrated the uh, Feast of Hanukkah, uh, that's indicated for us in the Gospel of John. Jesus did things specifically connected to the sacrificial system. Now, you could say that he did not have to do them to atone for his own sin, but he did have to do them to fulfill all righteousness and to perfectly identify with sinful humanity. So I would say, yes, Jesus had to do those things, anything that he did that was connected with the sacrificial system. He had to do those things, but not because he was a sinner. He had to do them because it was God's role. It was God's call on his life to perfectly identify with sinful humanity. That's why Jesus was baptized. That's why Jesus was circumcised. And ultimately, his identification with sinful humanity means that's why he went to the cross. He did not die for his own sins, but as a substitute and identification with our sin. So it was necessary, but not for the purpose of atoning or dealing with his own sin. I, I hope that helpful there for you, Dick. Ian says, according to scripture, is repentance meant to be a constant uh, in the life of a Christian, or is it called for only once prior to salvation? Well, Ian, I will give you a very quick answer to that. Yes, it's to be constant. We are to repent and to keep repenting. We are to keep ourselves in a place of humble repentance before God. I would say this. The only reason why a person needs to stop repenting is if they stop sinning. But if we recognize that we do continually sin, now, ho hopefully there's a growth in our Christian life and that we're becoming more and more holy as we walk with God. But we know that on this side of eternity, that'll never be perfected. Yet we understand that when we sin, we need to repent. And there will be in the life of a faithful believer, there will be times where the Holy Spirit, so to speak, puts his finger on a particular sin and says, dear child, you need to get this right with me. And then we should come to God with humble repentance. No, uh, the, the action of repentance and the humble heart of repentance should remain with a believer throughout their Christian life. 
Uh, Jose says, what does the Bible say about gluttony, eating and drinking excessively? Is it a sin? Yes, there's a few places. Um, more pointedly, in the Proverbs, does it speak about the danger of overeating and being flattered by someone's food? Uh, in the New Testament, I think there's a few mentions to it. But yes, a gluttony is a sin. It's a form of idolatry. Listen, we, we need to get back and understand that the real things that make for life and satisfaction in life are the things of the spirit, not the things of the flesh. And God has given us things of the flesh to enjoy, and it's okay to enjoy them, but we can never make idols of them. And it's possible to make an idol out of food. It's possible to make an idol out of drink. It's possible to make an idol out of many things. And so we need to avoid food idolatry, drink idolatry, and say, yes, I'll enjoy the good things of this world that God has given us. Praise the Lord for that. But I will not make an idol out of any one of those things. So great question there, Jose. Alex says, hi, Pastor David. I, too, have the same question regarding Saul visiting the medium, working on a study uh, on witchcraft. Would God use a medium to allow for Samuel to appear? Would God use a medium to allow for Samuel? Well, I, I, I believe God did, Alex. And let me say, if I can detect a reason why God did that in 1 Samuel, again, I can't remember if it's 1 Samuel chapter 29 or 30, but um, if I were to give a reason for that to happen, I think it was to give uh, Samuel, or excuse me, Saul, one last chance. You know, this was the day before Saul's death. And God was giving Saul, whom he gave so many chances to, one last chance, but it was to no avail because uh, Saul did not use the announcement of his coming judgment the next day as an invitation to repent as he should have done. Instead, he just went on in his foolish course and met his death. Um, so yes, that's, uh, let's see, in First Samuel... Chapter 28, actually, is where you find that record. Look up my notes on that in EnduringWord.com. Uh, Karina says, two questions. Maybe you can address this on Monday. Well, I'll keep going down here to the next questions here. Nathaniel says, hello, pastor. I was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then I was told that I was wrong and that I should only be baptized in the name of Jesus only which is correct. Okay, this is an issue that some groups in the Christian world make a big deal about. They say that if you're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's no good. Even though in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus said that we should go into all the earth, make disciples, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, there are some people who make a big deal about that and, and say, no, that's not the way you're to baptize. You're to baptize in the name of Jesus and Jesus only. Um, I think that this is a, uh, I'll just be very straightforward. I think it's a silly controversy. I, I don't think anybody doubts that when you baptize in the name of Jesus, you're baptizing someone in the name of the triune God. When you baptize someone in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you're baptizing somebody in the name of Jesus. 
I think this is a silly controversy. Now, I will say this, though, Nathaniel. When I baptize people, just to avoid this controversy, this is exactly what I say. Before I put them down on the way, you know, we pray together. I talk to them. I just see where they're at. I want to know where they're at. I want to know that they confess Jesus Christ as Lord. You know, so we talk for a bit. I, I pray for them. And then before I put them under the water, this is what I say. I say, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I baptize you in the name of Jesus. I just say both of them because then I've covered all my bases. If anybody comes afterwards and says, well, they, would you, well, listen, no matter what way somebody wants to slice it, then they've been baptized in the right name. But for somebody to make a big deal about a specific baptismal formula, as if it's like some spell that's put over a person in the baptized, I think it's it's a um, unprofitable controversy. Now, baptism is not an unprofitable controversy. The importance of baptism, the need of baptism, that's very important. And I think it's important for us to reclaim the idea of believers' baptism. And um, if you're a person who believes in child baptism, infant baptism, pedo-baptism, as it's sometimes called, uh, of course, you're my brother, you're my sister in Christ, but I would disagree with you quite strongly on that issue. Baptism and believers' baptism is quite important, uh, but... It is a um, the particular formula used in the baptism. I, I don't see any tremendous emphasis on that in the New Testament. By the way, I'm looking outside my window right now, and there's a little rabbit eating the grass right outside my window. What a beautiful thing to see right there. Okay. Um, Broken People says, Lord's blessings, Pastor David. Should Christians save money after proving for needs or providing for needs, or should everything go to expanding God's kingdom? Okay, so the question is, is it right, is it proper for Christians to save money, or should they just invest all that money into God's kingdom? Well, um, broken people, I would just say this. I would say that it is wise and prudent. It's good stewardship to have savings. The, the Bible tells us to be prepared for the unexpected. You'll find that in the book of Proverbs repeatedly. And again, I can't quote you chapter and verse, but that is a theme of several different Proverbs there uh, in the book of Proverbs. That we should just be wise. We should be good stewards. This is just managing resources well. Now, there is a point where accumulating things and saving them becomes hoarding, if you want to say that. And instead, somebody should put more focus on giving to the kingdom. But no, it is wise to have savings. And so I'm sure many people, most people, could and should be giving more to God's kingdom than they do. But the basic principle of saving money and to uh, use that as wise stewardship, I, I think that's fine. I think that's wisdom in walking and living in this world. Shushma says, oh. Let me go back. I missed that. It says Matthew chapter 27, 53, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went to the Holy City and appeared to many. Well, uh, Shushma, I, I don't know your exact question about that. That is a strange incident. But basically, I think what it's saying is that something uh, strange and um, impacting Life and death and eternity happened at the resurrection of Jesus. And these people were and are something like a 
first fruits of the resurrection. You know, the Bible says that in general, we should regard Jesus himself as the first fruits of the resurrection of all believers. And I think God was giving us a little bit of a preview with that, with those few who were resurrected. Um, indicated in Matthew chapter 26. It's a strange verse. Let's just admit that. Uh, but I think it was just showing that something epic, something that changed everything in time and space happened at the resurrection. And uh, it is a hallmark of the first fruits of the resurrection to come. Um, Marisol says, hi, pastor. Is there a Bible study on depression and anxiety or a book that you can recommend? I've heard people praying for these spirits to be cast out. Is depression and anxiety a spirit? Uh, Marisol, I think it's possible for a person's depression or anxiety to be mainly rooted in a spiritual cause. That's possible. But it's also possible for it to be rooted in a very real biological cause, just things going wrong in someone's body, hormonal, chemistry, whatever it is. So what you're asking is such a broad question that there's no one answer to it. There's no one answer to why are people depressed or anxious? Some people are just born that way. They're more prone towards those things. Other people have some life crisis that leads them towards those things. Uh, some people, it's very much tied to some kind of thing going on in their body that wasn't happening before. We could go on. There are some people who suffer great depression or anxiety because of spiritual attack or harassment upon them. So there's no one answer to the question. I would just say that it's good to address the issues on every front, to address them physically by getting good medical care, by addressing them with the habits of life to see if things contribute to that, to addressing things spiritually, most certainly, uh, by talking with people, praying with people, reading good books. W one book, the only book I can really think of that comes to my mind immediately is one called Spiritual Depression by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, he was a man who suffered many of these things. And so he wrote a book that's a little bit heavy, but I think I know it's been a benefit to some people that I know who have suffered with these things. Again, it's called Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Thank you for that, Marisol. Uh, Luis, yes, good questions. Enjoy uh, asking me what, Luis, you say you wish this could be more days of the week. Luis, let me tell you, that's not going to happen. We're not going to do it more than two days a week. And I don't know how much longer I'm going to do it two days a week. But anyway, I'm glad that. Uh, Anthony says, hello, Pastor David. Uh, sometimes I read a periodical by Archaeology Magazine, and it said that Eve wasn't created from the rib of Adam, but from his reproductive organ. According to the original language, laugh out loud, does it really matter? Well, um, Anthony, I don't think that that's the proper reading of it to say that um, to say that Eve was created out of Adam's side is just a polite way to say that Eve was created out of Adam's reproductive organ. I don't see that at all in the text. Um, certainly, I don't think that that's a dominant understanding from Bible commentators or people from the original language. 
So I, I don't think that that has to be seriously considered. But even if it were to, what would it really matter? It just wouldn't really matter. But I, I don't think really that's the case. And it's interesting. Uh, sometimes people just want to be provocative. Sometimes people just want to try to come up with something that people haven't. Sometimes people like to be a little bit shocking in what they bring forth. And, and maybe this is the case in the thing that you're talking about. Anyway, great to hear from you, um, Anthony. Uh, Alex, yes, praise the Lord for the Arabic translation. Um, let me just take a few more questions here. Uh, thank you so much, everybody, for your encouragement. Um, Conception Productions asks this. How would you reconcile John 3.16, God so loved the world, and Psalm 5.5, God hates the workers of iniquity. Thank you for your ministry. Well, I, I would reconcile it like this. Um, God loves humanity in general and provided the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for humanity in general. There is a sense in which Jesus died for the whole world. At the very least, Jesus died for the whole world as a demonstration of God's love to the whole world. And that's a, a valid demonstration of love. So that's something to look, to pay attention at, to, to, to rejoice in. So I don't think we have to shy away from that and say there is certainly a sense in which God loves the whole world, yet individual evildoers, God focuses his judgment. And if you want to put it in those terms, his hatred against. So it's just this simple idea that uh, a, a, a judge, let's just use an illustration, a judge can love his community, but still punish individual criminals within the community. And his punishment isn't necessarily contradictory to his love, both for the community or for individuals. So the fact that God loves the world, and we believe that that's true, at least in some sense, God loves the world. It doesn't take away from God's right or ability to judge the world and therefore to hate what the sinner does and to hate what the sin makes of the sinner. And that's why it says that God's hatred can be expressed against certain individuals. So I hope that helps you there, Conception. All right, just a couple more here, and then we'll end for the day. Dennis says, does God still give some gifts of healing, like an axe when Peter heals the lame beggar? Yes. I would say spectacular healings like that that we see in the book, they're somewhat rare. But look, let's say something. When we read the book of Acts, we read it. And it feels to us, man, something amazing, miraculous was happening every day. It's amazing. You need to remember, the book of Acts was written over something like a 20 or 30 year period. The book of Acts was written over a long period, let's just say 20 years, a long period of time. And I have been familiar with church movements that if you were to write of the spectacular things that God had done among those churches over 20 years, it would read just like the book of Acts. Does it mean that these are everyday, regular occurrences? No, but God does them, and they're wonderful, and we thank God for them. So yes, God still does give such gifts of healing today, Dennis. And um, wonderful. This is uh, the end of our thing, and I, I can't believe it. I've, I've come to the end of a question and answer, and I think I asked, I can't say I know for sure, maybe I skipped over one, but I think I asked every question that came in today on the Q&A. Very grateful for that. Very grateful that you could join me on today's question and answer. Join me on Monday when we get back together. 
And when we get back together on Monday, uh, 12 noon for a Q&A then, uh, we'll be starting all over again for questions and answers. Thank you. God bless you. Uh, thank you so much for your prayers for the ongoing work of Enduring Word, especially the work we have of getting this Bible commentary out into different uh, languages. That's a very important work for me, not just to do the translations, but to actually get them out to where people can use them. Tomorrow, we start a Facebook campaign in the Arabic-speaking world to let people know about the dedicated Arabic site with the commentary. And I appreciate your prayers for that Facebook campaign. God bless you. Thank you. Uh, hope to join. you can join us again. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.